Heavenly Father, you are great and you are worthy to be praised. I pray that our hearts, even though we're scattered throughout the greater Seattle area right now, would be joined together under the banner of what we just sang. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise be to Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth. I pray that you would help us enter into your presence this morning. It doesn't matter where we are. If we're in an apartment, if we're in a home with kids running around, you are with us. And I pray that that reality would be poignant and clear and distinct for us today as we worship together in the Spirit. And I pray that you would be with me, Father. Remove every possible error I could speak, any, any frailties of my flesh. Father God, remove those so that your Holy Spirit could teach and communicate your gospel to me and to my friends from this passage in the book of John. I ask this in the name of Christ Jesus alone, and I trust that you will provide this very thing. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, John 2, we're going to read through uh, verse 1 through verse 11 today. So John 2, 1 through 11. Begins like this, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. <clears throat> Jesus also invited, was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each of them holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you, you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So John tells us that, Jesus' disciples, after this event, believed in him. When he manifested his glory in this, at this wedding in Cana at Galilee, um, he was received by his disciples, and they believed in him. And this phrase, he manifested his glory, has been the title of our series, the series of messages that we've been in really since verse 19 of chapter 1. You can recall back, this was in March, believe it or not, when we started this series, and um, all the way up from that point to now, to this very verse in chapter 2, has all been pointing to this reality of Christ manifesting his glory, where John tells us that Jesus displayed his, his glory, his beauty, his radiance, who he really was when he displayed that. And we're going to talk in more detail about what that means, what it means for the human heart to believe uh, in that like the disciples are doing in the next few weeks, God willing. But um, 
We've already seen this in part. If you remember back to John 1.14, where, where John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And John is saying that Jesus came to manifest his glory, his beauty, his worth. The entire reason Jesus came was for this purpose. And it says that this event was the first of his signs showing that glory, first of his signs showing who he really was. And so I want to sit in this passage and really this series for a few more weeks longer. I wasn't going to do that. I was going to kind of wrap it up over the last next two weeks, but I feel like God wants us to sit here for a little bit and soak this in. And so let's deep dive this event and discover what this sign is and why it was so pivotal. What is this miracle pointing to? And why was it so critical that it had to come first in the ministry of Jesus before all the other signs? And so, and it's at a wedding of all places. So we'll look at that today. Um, and we're going to draw some of that meaning out. And then next week and the week after, God willing, we'll, we'll continue to do that and come back to this fountain. So here in, in today's text, John is continuing the narrative of Jesus's life. And he's come to a point, evidently, three days after his conversation with Nathaniel, which we looked at last Sunday. He's come to a point where um, he's at this wedding in Cana. His mother is there and his disciples are there with him. And verse three tells us at some point, during the wedding feast, the wine ran out. Uh, and this is in the context in which it is, is a big deal because at Jewish wedding celebrations, which could last four days, wine was a very, very large component of that celebration. And so when that happens here, Jesus's mother, who we know is Mary, goes to Jesus and says, they have no wine. This is what she tells him. Now we're not told why she tells him this, there's no motivation given, but we know that this is his first sign. So she likely does not know exactly how this is going to pan out, but she does know clearly that Jesus can provide some kind of solution. And so she tells him they have no wine. And Jesus responds to her saying, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And to us, I think modern English listeners and readers this seems a little bit harsh. Um, now, I think it's wise for us not to read too much into the use of the Greek word woman here, <laughs> as though Jesus was being disrespectful or dishonoring his mother. That's clearly not, not the case. Chapter 19, for example, has this scene where Jesus is on the cross dying, looking into the face of his mother, and he uses this same exact word. He, in that scene, he's, he's commending, actually, uh, his mother to the hands of John, the author of the book that we're reading. And he's commending John into the hands of his mother. In other words, they're going to care for each other as father or as mother and, and son from that point forward, which is probably why John, if you've noticed in this particular scene, doesn't actually call Mary, Mary. He calls her Jesus's mother because in a way uh, she was his own mother. Now, what is also clear about what Jesus says to Mary in this scene is that even though he's not disrespectful to his mother here, he is issuing a kind of rebuke to her. Um, he's, he's asking, why are you bringing this to me? And he tells her, my hour has not yet come. My hour hasn't arrived yet, which is a critical statement. We're going to pass over that for right now and come back to it in a few minutes. But Whatever he says to her clearly doesn't matter to Mary because she responds by telling the, the servants, do whatever he says, whatever he tells you, do it. 
obey him. And so they do. And he tells them to fill these water jars that are used for purification. Six jars. They could hold 20 to 30 gallons uh, a piece. So this is a lot of water. And they fill them up to the brim. And then he tells them, take some out, bring it to the master of the feast, and give him a drink. Now, the master of the feast was there to, to manage the, the wedding ceremony, make sure that the feast was going well. And um, <clears throat> he uh, takes the, 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 the water, now become wine, and drinks it, and is stunned. Because normally what happens is the bridegroom uh, brings out the, the poor wine, or the, the good wine first, and then the poor wine later, but he's apparently completely flipped the script in this moment. He's brought out the best wine last. At least that's what the master of the feast is thinking. And that's how good this wine really is. It's better than the first wine that they had. And it says here that this event, this sequence of events that happens, was where, where Jesus turned water to wine was his first sign. That's what verse 11 tells us. His disciples believed in him when they saw this first sign that he presented. He manifested his glory. And so it's, it's a miracle. Clearly it is, is a miracle. Jesus, think about this, doesn't say anything over the water. He doesn't gesture. He doesn't uh, um, pray even. As far as we can tell here, he just tells them, you go get the water and it becomes wine at some point along the way before it gets to the master of feast's mouth. Now, why this sign? This word sign in the Greek is semion. And it is, a, uh, it is a, a sign that would authenticate or validate something or someone, which is clearly what this is doing here, validating Jesus' claim to being the Christ, to being the Messiah. And that's exactly what's going on here. But, but why this sign? Why this specific sign? Why not the healing of a blind man? Why not that as the sign? I mean, that, that right there, we know Jesus is going to do later. Why not the, the healing of someone who's been paralyzed their entire life? Or uh, maybe someone who's deaf, the, the, the healing of their, their ears and their hearing. Why not those? We know Jesus is going to do those signs. Why doesn't he lead with something like that? Or why not Jesus in John 11 raises a dead man from death to life, like right in front of their eyes? Why not that? Doesn't it, it, it seem strange, it seems strange to me that the Messiah, the Christ who came into the world to redeem it from sin and death has this event as the means by which first manifesting his glory. I mean, what's the worst that could have happened here? <laughs> Think about it. What, they go home early? The party's over? The groom is embarrassed? No one is physically hurt in this scene. No one is destitute. No one's dying. There's no life or death stakes. It's just wine. And so why is this the first sign? And the reason is that this is one of the most significant signs Jesus ever will do or give. There are deep truths and realities at the heart of what he is doing in this scene, which is why I feel compelled to stay here for a few weeks and just draw out one Sunday at a time, the parts, the elements, the ingredients that make this so profound of a sign. And part of what we're going to be looking at today is rooted in Jesus's gentle and loving rebuke of his mother um, when she comes to him and says, they have no wine. And he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? 
my hour has not yet come. Now, Jesus could mean, and some theologians believe that he does mean, that his hour that he's referring to here is when he first starts to perform signs and miracles and, <clears throat> and shows that he's the Christ. Um, and maybe it is that. But from what I can see in this text and from what I can see across the entire span of the book of John, nothing in the course of the book of John corroborates that that's the case. Because before the end of this chapter, Jesus is going to be doing signs left and right. And he's not going to signal the first. It's just going to happen. And John's not even going to mention the specifics about any of those. And um, we also recognize that, that Jesus isn't unaware, and we should recognize that Jesus isn't surprised that he's going to do this. He doesn't just say this statement to Mary and then backpedal and decide, okay, fine, I'll actually do this, this sign. He knows that he's going to turn water and wine. This isn't a decision on the spot for Jesus. He's, the Son of God doesn't toss an idea around a little bit and then make a decision that he's going to do this. He knows what he's going to do, and his mother even knows that he knows he's going to do it because she tells them, after his response, tells the servants, you need to obey whatever he says. And of course they do. So why does Jesus issue this rebuke if he's going to do this anyways? If this sign is going to be his sign, <coughs> why does he say this? Well, the phrase, my hour, in the book of John has primarily one view throughout the entire book. When Jesus says my hour or when John refers to his hour talking about Jesus, it is always about the cross. It is always about him going to the cross and dying. Uh, in John 7 and John 8, there's these scenes where Jesus is about to get arrested or about to get harmed physically. As far as the, the, the people around him are concerned, that's exactly what they want to do. But John tells us the reason why it doesn't happen in that moment is because it wasn't his hour yet. It wasn't his hour to die. It wasn't his hour to suffer and get arrested and go to the cross until, of course, we read in John 12, which we'll get to, God willing, years from now. Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. Verse 23 of John 12, Jesus answered them, The hour is come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And then just a few verses later, in verse 27, he says, For this very purpose, I have come to this hour. This is why Jesus was born. Jesus was born ultimately for the hour of the cross. Everything up to that point is leading to that one moment when he would be arrested and would die on the cross, his own death. That was the hour that he was always headed for. So when Jesus says, is mentioning and thinking about his hour at this wedding, it means that he was thinking about his death. He was thinking about the cross. Now, why? Why would you be thinking about that? You're at a wedding. Why is this wedding causing you especially when the wine runs out, causing you to think about your death, which is years away. It's like at least three years away from Jesus at this point. Well, we have a hint. A chapter from now, John 3, there's a moment where John the Baptist briefly resurfaces. We see that he's kind of gone to the back of the scene, and he's going to do that again at some point. But he will briefly resurface here in John 3. Uh, in uh, the, the narrative that the author, John, is doing. And there's a direct connection when he does resurface between Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ, 
in the concept, the reality of a wedding. And this is what's going to give us information for us to be able to understand what happens in Cana better. Um, and when Jesus is referenced to a wedding by John, which we'll see in just a few moments, it's not just any wedding. The concept of, of the wedding that he's being referenced in is not just a general wedding or the general idea of wedding. It is the one wedding that all weddings point to, namely the wedding between Christ and his bride, the church, everyone who has trusted in him and put their faith in him. So look at this scene with me in John 3, verse 25. <clears throat> it says, Now a discussion arose between some of John, John the Baptist's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, that's Jesus, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness, bear me witness, that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Now listen to this. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is a glorious passage, and Lord willing, we will be here for some time when we get to it in our journey through John. But I want to draw out two specific things that are important for us to understand John 2 in this wedding event at Cana. The first is how all of this begins. Look at this. There's a discussion between John the Baptist's disciples and a, an unnamed Jewish man uh, over purification. And then immediately, <laughs> without any explanation, it escalates to a conversation about John losing his own disciples. And John the Baptist is entirely okay with this. He has no problem with this as evidence here. But what in the world does that have to do with purification? Why start with a debate, a discussion about the Jewish rite of purification, and then how is that connected to the issue of people leaving John the Baptist ministry for Jesus? Like, why, are there, why is there a connection between uh, the two there? Um, and uh, the answer is in who John the Baptist was, who John said he was from the very beginning. He came to prepare God's people, to prepare a way through the wilderness, as uh, Malachi tells us, and he was to call the people of God to repentance through this sign of baptism uh, in order to prepare the way for the Messiah. That was John's entire role. He's always attested to that being the case. He was there to prepare the people. And his whole point, and this is the second thing that we need to draw from this passage in John 3, is that Jesus is the bridegroom. Jesus is the husband. He alone has the bride. And the bride there are the people who are going to him from John the Baptist. That's the bride. And so Jesus has the bride. John the Baptist is only the friend of the bridegroom. And it says here that the friend, John says, rejoices greatly at the voice of the bridegroom. In other words, now that Jesus is here, now that Jesus is here, my job 
is complete. My job isn't to call people to me. My job is to decrease now and for him to increase. That's what the friend does when the bridegroom shows up. He gets out of the way so that the bride can see the bridegroom. And so this entire time, from John 1.19, when we first looked at John the Baptist's ministry back in March, all the way through this passage that we're reading now that we'll get to in a few months, John 3.30, has been about this wedding reality. And John the Baptist says Jesus is the bridegroom. Like, wedding truth, wedding, the, the idea of what a wedding is, is connected to this ultimate relationship between Jesus and his church and his body, his one true bride. So Jesus is the one true bridegroom and his people, those who come after him, are his bride. And so let's go back to the wedding at Cana when Jesus says, my hour has not yet come to his mother. He's not thinking about any hour, but the one that matters most in that moment and that hour is the, the hour of his own, where, the hour that's most important for his own wedding to his bride. The hour that matters most becomes even more clear in how Jesus pushes it forward in this random wedding scenario where he is sustaining this celebration that they have. The names of these people are not even mentioned specifically for the, the, the reason of, of manifesting his glory by using, think about this, stone jars, six stone jars for purification. Now remember what incited the conversation between John the Baptist's disciples and this Jew that led to this dialogue about people going to the bridegroom. It was a conversation about purification. It was a conversation about the ceremonial act of cleansing that Jews would participate in. And we see this throughout the book of Leviticus. We see this um, throughout really the Old Testament, and it's this signification of ceremonial cleanliness through water, and it's really like the very basis for baptism to begin with. It's a picture of repentance that people participate in, and it's a picture of the receiving of forgiveness from God. And so to provide wine for this wedding, Jesus takes jars restricted for the Jewish act of purification and he fills them with water, and then he turns the water to wine, and this is his first sign. Jesus is linking his role as Christ and Messiah, which is what this sign is telling people who he is. He's linking that to his role as bridegroom and his role as the lamb. If you remember John the Baptist, not too, too, too many verses before this scene, says of Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb in John 1, and in John 3, he calls Jesus the Bridegroom, and all two of those are being held together in this scene. Jesus is the, the Messiah. He is the Lamb of God. He will be sacrificed like a lamb to save his people from their own sins. And in this wedding, where we see him manifest his glory to his disciples and they respond in faith in verse 11, Jesus is showing what he must do as the bridegroom. In order to secure his own wedding, in order to redeem his own bride, he would have to die. That would be the ransom cost for her because of her sin. 
That was the only way that he could get the bride whom he set his eyes on. And that bride is every single one of us who have put our faith and trust in Christ Jesus. That bride is his church. Without the cross, there is no wedding. There is no ultimate wedding. Without his death, there is no purification of sins for his bride. Now listen to this same author, John, in the epistle. Listen to what he says here about Jesus and about what Jesus is going to do. John says in in 1 John 1, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, that is God, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. John is saying that it is the blood of Christ that purifies his people from their sin. And this word cleanse here in 1 John 1 is the same word for purification in John 2. And in John 3, it's the same exact word in the Greek. And by using these jars, Jesus is using this as a moment, this sign to manifest his glory to show the ultimate bridegroom. He's holding out the ultimate husband who will make the greatest sacrifice in the world in order to secure his bride. Which is why when we get all the way to Ephesians 5, way further in the New Testament than where we are now, Paul tells husbands, this is how you husband. You want to know how you are a husband to your wives? Lay your life down every day. Lay your life down. That's what being a husband means. It is dying for your bride. And then he tells us why the meaning of husband is that. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, certainly husbands don't lay down their lives for that reason, because they can't purify their wives. (laughs) But Christ Jesus did lay down his life for the church to purify her. The reason that Jesus, at a nameless wedding in the middle of Cana of Galilee, when told that the wine has run out by his mother, the reason that he responds to his mother, woman, what have I do to do? What, 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 have, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. The cross isn't here yet, is what he's saying. That's the reason he mentions that statement. Think about this. Every wedding between a man and a woman, between a a bridegroom and a bride, every single wedding in this world that is like that is merely an echo of the one reality that all weddings are reflecting. The one true wedding between Christ and his bride, the church. And so Jesus, in this moment, is thinking about his wedding. In this moment, he's thinking about his bride. In this, the ceremony before him, like whether that continues or not is trivial. It is a trivial thing ultimately. But what is infinitely important is the wedding of Jesus Christ. And so in using the purification jars and in filling them up with water that will be turn, turned to wine, Jesus is prefiguring what it is the cross will accomplish for his bride. He will sanctify his bride. Just like Paul said in Ephesians 5, 
Jesus will cleanse her by the washing of water with the word, which is, is the gospel. It's, it's the news of how he actually redeems her through the cross. And he does this so that she will be perfect without any spot, without any wrinkle, without any, any such thing that she would be blameless and without blemish because of his own death on that Roman tree. This is not an inconsequential sign. This is not an accident that it happened. This is not a random event where Jesus had to actually do this because he was trying to solve an immediate situation. Jesus is showing something extraordinarily profound in this sign. It points to the work of Christ to remove every ounce of sin, every ounce of shame, every ounce of guilt that had infected his bride. And he does that by dying in her place. That's what he means when he says, my hour has not yet come. But here's the deal. Through this sign at the wedding, Jesus is saying, in some way, my hour will come one day. It will come. And I will be carried away to be brutally tortured and crucified as the Lamb of God, slaughtered to remove the sins of my precious bride. And I will pass through that horrific event so that on the final day, my bride will be presented before me in glorious splendor. This is, this is the real reason for the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ allows us to be free from sin, free from death, free from judgment, free from all the shame that we've held on to because of our sin. And this is why the weddings, weddings are, this is why we have weddings. This is why weddings are a big deal to, to people. Um, it's not because of any glory they have in and of themselves. It's because of this ultimate wedding that they point to, which we read about at the very end of our Bibles in Revelation 19. Listen to this. Written by the same author who wrote the Gospel of John in that epistle that we read earlier, 1 John 1. John writes this in the book of Revelation. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, what we sang earlier. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come. The marriage of the Lamb. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, said to John, write this, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb. This is why we have weddings. Because of this one wedding that they are all pointing to. And so in the next few moments, we're going to, <coughs> we're going to have an opportunity to sing again <clears throat> in worship. And um, during that song, if your faith is in Christ Jesus, if you consider yourself belonging to the bride, being part of the church, the body of Christ that we just saw in Revelation 19, then I would invite you in whatever context you're in, in your home, apartment, wherever you are 
around whomever you are, I would invite you to participate in the Lord's Supper. I would invite you to partake in the bread and the cup, which are a picture of the cross. They are a picture of Christ's work to redeem and ransom his own bride, us, that we might be pure and holy before him. But before we, we, we do that, before we go to the song and before we pray, I, I want to read to you lyrics from a song. Um, it's a modern song, um, and I don't usually read lyrics from songs, um, but I found these profoundly relevant for today's passage. Um, it is a modern rendition of Psalm 45. It is a song that's called The Fairest of Them All. It's referring to Jesus. And it is talking about the cross. It talks about the bride. And it talks about our future with him. So speaking of Jesus, listen to this lyric. Jesus on the cross. It says, your heart burst at the seams, flowing with blood and with water, a song of love pouring out from the tree, singing for the joy set before me. You ransomed your bride on the day that you died and you ascended to heaven in glory. Now she stands clothed in white with her head lifted high, singing, come and return in your glory. That's our prayer as the bride of Christ. And so let's pray it together today. The realities that are in this passage are too great, Father, for me to adequately give them service to your people. So I am relying entirely on your Holy Spirit. Come. Help us understand what it means to be the bride of Christ. Help us understand what it means for you to have in your son, Christ Jesus, penetrated, infiltrated the, the reality of our fallenness, brokenness, and hung to it so tightly on the cross that you were brought to ruin and died, perished under the wrath, the just wrath of God for our injustice. Help us feel the weight of that. And then help us step back from the awesomeness of that and recognize that we are your bride. <laughs> that you love us. That you delight in us. That you had your eyes fixed to us. You're chosen. You're precious. Such that you would give your life. And so now we, we, when we sing on Sundays, when we sing, when we think about you any day of the week, we come to you with our heads lifted high, <laughs> purified by the blood of Jesus Christ. We come to you with our hearts singing to you, Jesus, come, return in your glory. Redeem the bride that you had purchased with your own blood that we might be with you forever and delight in you as we were made to do. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.